Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm so well. I'm very excited about this uh, this show tonight. I just think we're this is going to be very cool. I think so, too. Before we get started on that, I'd like to, at the top of the show, have a quick call to action. Folks, if you enjoy listening to No Country, first of all, thank you. We appreciate your time and we respect it. If you wouldn't mind, if you do have a few moments in your day, uh, we'd be very grateful if you headed over to iTunes and left a review. There will be a link for that in the show notes. If you don't leave a link or leave a review to the show at iTunes, please do talk about the show on social media, share it with friends that you think might be interested in the kind of things Chris and I talk about, um, or otherwise um, shout it to the world, blog about it. So um, today, just so you know, we'll get into what we're talking about in just a moment, but this is going to be a multi-part conversation, very similar to our In Search of Genius three-part episode. So stick around, make sure that you tune in every Wednesday at noon, and we will have more episodes on this topic. But now, Chris, what are we going to talk about today? All right. All right. Well, I, I think that that we're really heading into some dark and mysterious waters now. Um, actually, we're heading into the heart of of the idea of mystery, perhaps the mystery that lies at the heart of, of human consciousness and how that evolved. And it is going to take some inching to get there. You know, you don't mm -hmm. do the whole Congo river, uh, easily. You don't do the Amazon. You don't do the Nile, the Nile river. Imagine the Nile river at twilight. I'm so glad I got to see that. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. And to hear the sound of crocodiles actually swimming in the Nile. So that's mm -hmm. a little bit of a hint about where we're going. But the topic in overall terms, uh, well, let's use the working code, the haunted mirror. And let's say that with underneath that umbrella, to mix metaphors, which is a lovely idea, everyone should mix <laughs> metaphors as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, we get ideas like the mysterious double, twins, shadows, reflections, echoes, doppelgangers, and an idea that is related, which some people may know, uh, of the Vardiger. All of these ideas we're going to talk about and come out from, from a range of different angles. But for listeners who are wanting to keep a little bit of sense of, of their heads above water with this very complicated topic. Uh, we're going to start off in this show talking about the mythological, folkloric, and religious traditions regarding the mysterious double as an idea. Uh, and it is very much one of those great human archetypal motifs it repeats and repeats and repeats like shadows, reflections, and echoes very well might. Uh, it lies at the heart of the notions of human consciousness, the twin hemispheres of the brain, the mind-body schism, which comes from Descartes, the ghost and the machine, the ghost in the machine, male, female, on and on and on. 
all of these strange, curious intertwinings of, of binaries and relationships that are so fundamental to every culture that we're aware of uh, right to this very minute. Um, but it, it also ties in at a deep, deep level with the idea of language and the voices in our head. I mean, why do we hear voices in our head when we're, we're reading? Whose voice is that? Um, all of these questions are very, very complex, uh, but they do tie in with this notion of doubleness, which, you know, there's some good things about it. There's an old saying, one person is alone, two, pers- two people are an army, you know? Mm-hmm. There, there's a good thing. Uh, the book of James in the Bible puts another point of view. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So we have some real uh, issues with the idea of, of doubleness. Two-face, you know, the Janus, the god of two faces, that's not a good thing, you know, always. But on the other hand, to have foresight, you know, is a good thing. So to be of two minds, you know, two minds are better than one. We have a great deal of conflict uh, historically, around the world, in the notion of of the double, um, but we can't really get away from it. So we're going to have a look at three different aspects. This, as I said, the folkloric, mythological, religious side, the secular, artistic, literary side. There are some great literary stories. Think of just one, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. I mean, what a great idea! Um, and then looking finally in terms of the psychology the official scientific views on this, and then our our friend Charles Fort's and Fortrian science, um, sort of the, the parascientific view. Um, so how does that sound as like an overall map? We say the map isn't the territory, but I wanted to throw down a map, at least a little bit of a guide. I think that sounds like a great map. I'm very excited, and I'll admit to the listeners up front a little intimidated by this subject because it is so big. But Me too. I, but I think that we'll work our way through it together. And I think that um, when we come out the other side, I think we'll have some pretty keen insights on the whole thing. Now, when you talked about the subject of the doppelganger as the sort of overarching, the, the umbrella, the haunted mirror that you talked about for this right. maybe three, right. maybe more episode, the first thing that came to my mind was dispelling some misconceptions that people might have about what the doppelganger actually is. Good idea. So I think that we want to say right up front that doppelganger has become widely used in English to denote anybody who looks like you. If you go on YouTube and search for doppelganger, all the videos that come up have something to the effect of this person meets their doppelganger and now let's interview them and talk about how weird it is that they look similar. Now that is not a doppelganger. That's a dead ringer. What would you say is important for people to know about the difference between a doppelganger and a dead ringer? Okay. Well, first of all, what you're talking about in terms of a cultural progression or denigration of an interesting idea is a movement we see across many concepts and individual words where we begin with a hermetic, magical, 
almost sacred sense of meaning and importance. And we get down to a very boring level of cigarettes, alcohol, and social media. You know, mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. it's been degraded down to that level. I mean, think of the, the beautiful Hindu idea of an avatar, and that becomes a silly icon for who you are on some sort of tragic dating site, you know? Right. Um, so this is not an uncommon problem. But I, th- I think that what we want to uh, dispel entirely is that the dead ringer idea is just kind of a nonsense. I mean, it isn't often even real. It's sometimes just the virtue of, of doctored photos. But it's a boring kind of statement of, of coincidence of like, well, X looks like X, you know, and mm-hmm. that's not at all. Doppelganger as an idea is, is very, very different. Um, and it's, it's psychological power. Um, I think we could look at, um, we may get around to talking about this uh, in its own right, but Jordan Peele's movie Us, Mm -hmm. uh, the invasion of the body snatchers uh, models, those those movies where you, people are actively being replaced by their doubles. They're, they're, like a cloned version of themselves in that sense. And we'll certainly, you know, at what, at, at towards the, you know, down the track, talk about the, the biological and biotech aspects of actual cloning, but doppelganger in the way that we're about to sort of approach it, the mysterious double, uh, the emphasis is on mystery and that deeper sense of magic, religion, folklore, uh, cultural mythology it's not just someone who happens to look like you, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's just boring and um, kind of tick tock, you know? Sure. Sure. So I'll complicate it a bit uh, by telling a ghost story that I have a lot of time for. I want to talk about the mysterious case of Emily Saget. Um, that's good. That's a nice call. Okay. I'll go with that. Yeah. So we're, we're moving a little bit further away here with this story from, a person encountering someone who who doesn't who just looks like them. So, in 1845, Emily Saget moved to Latvia. She was a French teacher, and she moved to Latvia to get a job at a girls' school. And when she was being hired, um, her interviewers were a bit worried about her work history because she had worked at 19 different schools in the past 16 years, and she was a very young woman. She was in her early 30s at this point. What they found eventually was that the reason she had been kicked out of all of these schools was because she had a very um, strange ailment. So it first occurred a few days after she was hired. She's sitting in a sewing class with 13 girls, and she's writing on the chalkboard. And the girls uh, see, next to Emily, her actual double appear and begin to mimic her movements on the chalkboard. While time goes by, nobody believes a classroom full of young girls at this point. I'm not really sure they would today, but Emily is at the cafeteria and she's eating her lunch. And once again, this mysterious apparition that looks exactly like her appears behind her and seems to be mimicking her movements as she's eating. It doesn't have any food in its hands, but it's doing the things that she does as she sits at the table. Now, a key point here is that Emily can't see this apparition, but everybody else can. She knows that it exists because obviously she's been told this over and over again. She's had to move from school to school, but she can't see 
her own doppelganger. And then finally, what was the straw that broke the camel's back, she was out in the school's garden um, helping some girls plant a rose bush, and she had a substitute teacher watching over that very same sewing class. Well, she walked back upstairs and told the, well, indicated that she was ready to take the class back over, so the substitute left, and she sat down at her desk and just kind of sat there and stared off into space. Well, the girls went to the window and looked out and noticed that Emily was in fact still in the garden helping and that the thing that had come up the stairs and was now sitting in front of them was, I'll just use the term, her doppelganger. So my question that I pose to you with this story, which is a fun story, I'll link to it in the show notes if you want more details. Would you call that a doppelganger? Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, I I like this idea of of a mysterious double or shadow as the the larger rubric that embraces the idea of the doppelganger uh, and what we'll get to in a little bit of of the vartiger and and how those two ideas relate and how they're different. Um, But I absolutely would. And I think there are a couple of, of points here that are really, um, well, there's many points that are really interesting. For starters, I mean, I don't know if people uh, will pick up on this, but you will if you go back and listen. David's voice actually changes when he enters into this topic, as if the topic itself is is kind of directing the mood and mm-hmm. and the art direction of his voice. And I don't think that was conscious at all. I think it's just inherent in the idea. And it wasn't like a huge uh, difference. It wasn't like an attempt to be theatrical at all. It mm-hmm. just is in the nature of, of the topic. Um, but I, I personally did hear some interesting theme music. Not, you know, obvious sort of ghost story, horror story, sort of, you know, B minor type music, exactly. But something strange, something um, a little bit in the string arena, or maybe a very curious woodwind, you know, (laughs) that kind of a thing. And I did uh, notice, and I, I liked the expression, I mean... Uh, and and horror fans and people like you know anyone who likes Ambrose Bierce or Lovecraft who we're not really ready to get into just yet, they would love that line of yours, the thing that came up the stairs, mm-hmm. you know, not the figure, not the presence, uh, right. but 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 those ideas are there. Um, I'll, you know, and, and you're a great fan of, of synchronicity, and you and I have several, we, we often have them. It's very strange. Maybe our listeners won't be surprised by that, but but, but we often kind of share. I'll share one with you of, that uh, that happened to me just in, I was out for a walk uh, earlier this morning, and I'm always one of those people who thinks that, you know, pieces of paper are secret messages, you know, from oh, yes, me the too. secret world, right? And of course, oftentimes they're not. And you, you know, you've got to be a little bit careful about picking them up. And I actually have ways of doing that without wearing those awful uh, nitrile gloves. But uh, I picked this up, and it was uh, the the early signs of Parkinson's. 
And most of them are pretty obvious and people would know about the, you know, motion and coordination related. But the, the last one was, was very interesting and ties directly into this theme. It's the false sense of presence. And I had, in fact, found this piece of paper on the side of a fairly major boulevard here in Vegas. I had found it because I'd had this moment of thinking someone was coming up behind me and I was walking pretty briskly. And I thought, well, I'm either going to, if they're going to overtake me, I'm going to pull over and just, you know, pretend like I've got a phone call or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was nobody there. Mm -hmm. There was nobody there. I had a false sense of presence. And then I look down and I find this sheet about the signs of Parkinson's. Like, I mean, okay, there are a lot of medical clinics around there. I'm sure there's a logical explanation for it, you know, as they mm -hmm. say in the movies before, you know, the monsters come. There's a logical explanation yeah. for it, <laughs> you know. And then someone's disemboweled by something with claws. But yeah. anyway, to get back to that choice of words, the thing that came up the stairs, I think what's important about that and, and why that's a good introduction to this larger subject, which relates directly to, for people who are fans of Freud, and frankly, if you're not a fan of Freud, I think you need to reconsider, um, mm -hmm. and I'm going to stand by that. Mm -hmm. But it, it ties in directly to one of his best pieces of writing on, on the uncanny, that, that feeling of the uncanny. And that is another... Uh, underlying theme to this whole topic that David and I are going to be exploring because you cannot separate the a sense of the uncanny from this larger topic of of the mysterious double twins reflections shadows echoes uh, doppelgangers vartigers there's something uncanny about it and. That's almost, I think, that atmospheric and intuitive, visceral, uh, deep mind, reptile mind uh, perception is almost more important than anything that you can say about the topic. You know, it's just so weird. I it's agree. uncanny. <laughs> yeah, it's un exactly the, the way that you feel when something uncanny happens is uncanny in and of itself. Um, I think that when you feel things like that, whether it's people walking up behind you or the feeling of uncanniness or synchronicities, I think that my perspective on that is that it that it is a real thing that's happening. And my logic behind it is simple, which is that if it was just a trick of the brain, one would think that it would that it wouldn't yield such good results right? Number one, that it would happen much more often. And secondly, that when it did happen, there wouldn't quite be that click that there, there often is. Um, would you like to get into the mythology of the double? Because I think yeah, that that's a, and I, that's I, a I starting think, place. Yeah, I, I think the way to look at that is, is, is a way of, of kind of through cultural history, through folklore, religion, and mythology, some basic stories, some world stories, is a way of kind of breaking down what you just said, some of the conflicts of, well, why doesn't this happen all the time? And time is a key concept that we're going to come mm. back to, mm. because shadow and memory and foresight all deal directly with time. 
So when I said at the start, I think that we've, we're, we're stumbling and fumbling and feeling our way to the heart of the idea of, of the human mystery. What I mean by that, I think, is we're, we're, we're nearing a master concept, a master conflict, and a master tool, and also a master pit, in a sense. It, it's all of those things rolled into one. Um, but maybe the way to start with, with um, it, this in mythological terms, and we're sort of, you know, I, I hope people can bear with us, because we are sort of going on a hermetic journey. We talked in the last episode about the hermetic idea of being traveling between the worlds, and, and this is a, a beautiful example of that. Let's talk about the idea of zizigy, Z-S-Y-Z, or Z-Y-G-Y. Um, which has several different meanings. In astronomical terms, it's about the alignment of heavenly bodies. In other words, the sun, the earth, the moon. Um, but it's seen in, in, in the, the, the derivation of the word from, from uh, the Greek tradition is a conjunction. And it, it became a very important uh, idea in Jungian psychology. And this is his definition of it. And it, it has a, a very, very important uh, concept built into it. He defines it as an archetypal pairing of contrasexual opposites. Uh, I encourage people to investigate the word contrasexual. Um, it's not one that we, uh, we come across very often, even though as a prefix and suffix, it should be pretty self-explanatory. It's a very interesting word. But an archetypal pairing of contrasexual opposites that is symbolized by the communication between the conscious and unconscious mind. So we have a really, really important uh, psychological concept coming out of a very ancient tradition of both mythology and astronomy. Um, and that, of course, will lead us eventually to talking about different hemispheres of the brain. But let's look at one of the, the key uh, mythological examples of this from Greek mythology. The twins Castor and Pollux, or Polydeuces, uh, who, as constellations, they, they can be found, they're, they're twin stars within the constellation of Gemini, um, and Pollux is, is the slightly brighter of the two. It's the 18th brightest star uh, in the northern hemisphere's uh, nightly sky. Um, in the northern hemisphere, it will be more, most visible in the springtime. And I'm actually going up the road to Tonopah, Nevada, which is the stargazing capital of the 11 western states. Um, and I'll go up there in the spring when it's a little bit uh, warmer at night. But Castor and Pollux uh, were twins. Uh, this, you know, of one of the great examples of mythological mysterious twins. They they figure into mythology in many ways. They were the offspring of Leda, who, as people may remember, was seduced and or raped. I think raped would be more the word. Mm -hmm. by Zeus in the form of a swan. I think that's a very, very strange... Of all of the, the, the rapes of Zeus, I think that's one of the strangest. Mm -hmm. uh, 
manifestations. It's a very, very odd story. And of course, it figures into literature in many, many different contexts. Um, many people have taken that theme up and going, oh, you know, what, what's going on here? Um, mm-hmm. But Castor and Pollux were good luck for sailors. They sailed on with Jason and in pursuit of the Golden Fleece with the Argonauts. They were the you know part of they were Argonauts, um, but they also figure into an earlier uh, episode that that we where we talked about the beginnings of the science or magical art of memory. Listeners may remember that we talked about Giordano Bruno, who's very important to both. David and myself, uh, hermetic Renaissance philosopher, magician, scientist, proto-scientist, who was uh, burned al- alive in the field of flowers in Rome uh, for heretical beliefs, uh, or really just not going along with the program. Um, but the art of memory that that was that Bruno developed comes from the legend of Simonides of Sais, uh, who had a banquet back in, in uh, Greco-Roman days. And the roof collapsed and everyone died. But Simonides had been called to the front door outside because two men had mysteriously appeared and were calling for him. And they were believed to be Castor and Pollux uh, coming to save him. And he developed the art of memory by being able to recall who was seated around the table, even though their bodies had been so completely destroyed by the collapsed ceiling. So in this case, we have a a really good example of the mysterious double, the twins, the shadows, being, they're, they're a precursor of the doppelganger idea of the divided self, the individual repeated. These are actual twins in that sense. And they are entirely good. Notice that they're real saviors. They're good luck for sailors. They're, they're good omens. They're, they're, they, they save people. Um, and I think one way to look at, at, and this is kind of a hint is where this whole topic is going, is there's a very, very big difference between even mysterious twins and the divided self the ghost self, the doppelganger, the vartiger, mm-hmm. the, the divided mind, and the schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're, we're, we've got a, a kind of an arc here of, of health, magic, good, beneficent uh, inter, you know, intervention heading towards something uh, split and fragmented and unwhole and mm-hmm. not good. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's, mm-hmm. I think, one mythological start. Um, then we can jump into something that I know is, is dear to your the heart of your mind, David, uh, Gnosticism. Yes, I feel like we need a theme song for whenever Gnosticism comes up so that we can, we can denote that we're about to talk about things that are very much up my alley. Well, this is where the, the zizigy, and it is a little bit hard to pronounce, it's a one-drink word, as, as my friend says, uh, <laughs> we get in the Gnostic tradition, as I understand it, a, a very interesting idea, which is kind of related to yin and yang, but we have um, a, a, a complementary, complementary sort of relationship between two opposed, non-opposed ideas. They're not actually opposed. That's the important point. They're complementary. Um, And again, so we have an early idea of binaries 
of, uh, you know, the, the wise versus the strong, or the wise and the strong, male and female. We have a sense of and, not versus, in the beginning of these traditions. And it seems to me the Gnostic idea of this is, is, is the most uh, profoundly positive, where you have the, the, this, these divine uh, complementary uh, pairings as defining the pleroma or, or the divine realm of, of, of existence. Mm-hmm. How does that begin to, does that tingle your Gnostic uh, intuitions? It does, because I feel like the fact that you mentioned that these are non-opposed but rather complementary goes to the very heart of what starts with Gnosticism, moves into occultism, hermeticism. Later on in the 20th century, we get theosophy and anthroposophy, 19th and 20th century. And that is the key concept of as above, so below, which becomes very important in the study of alchemy. Um, this this ability to, to transform oneself through observing and adopting the, the patterns of change in either larger celestial bodies or in, um, you know, sort of like the elements that are around you is very, very important to the overall Gnostic project. Um, as far as the, as the kind of duality within that makes up the Pleroma, I think that, yeah, the Gnostics were on top of this in a way that earlier religions simply weren't. There is a lot of whether it's the, um, I use the term archons often. In fact, a few episodes ago, I believe I used the term archonic, which I might've said too quickly and it might've sounded like iconic. Um, but the idea of the, of the archons is that they are the followers of a God that is below the main God, right? So there's a there's a god way up top. If you imagine this as a as a chart, at the very top you have God, and then you have um, the sort of blind idiot God below God who thinks that he created everything, but really didn't. And from that God, this cre- this quote unquote creator, you have something called Arcanism, which is the pushing against all that is natural and some would say good, um, because it seeks to create for itself uh, what should just sort of come naturally. So it's a very specific word. However, when you get into Gnostic reading, that sort of that duality between the aeonic and the archonic begins to meld in very curious and specific ways, where it's no longer an opposition. It's not a it's not a war of this side against the other side, but rather it's complementary. It's those, it's those things, it's the interplay of those two things that allows for a lot of spiritual development and personal development. You know, that, that really seems to me the difference between the Jungian idea of the anima and the animus versus the Manichaean idea of good and evil, which, I mean, I, I, I'm the first one to admit that, that a good old, you know, good and evil, uh, conflict, you know, drives a lot of interesting literature. Um, but it's a pretty tedious way of looking at the world truly, I think. Um, 
And it's a terrible way of looking at one's own personal journey because none of, well, very few of us feel like we're really up to the challenges of, uh, well, certainly evil. I think we're, we're, we're capable of doing a lot of bad things. But I think evil sounds a little bit noble and powerful in a way that, that you know, if everyone had that level of self-esteem, social media wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and good degrades, you know, to, you know, basic virtue of being seen to be good as opposed to actually doing good. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas what we're talking about with, with the Gnostic, you know, idea of, of, of complementary uh, connection is to me that's all the difference in the world you know um mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, I, it's about wholeness and unity and and not division right and i think that the key distinction here which might lead to the feelings of uncanniness that we get when we talk about the doppelganger is that if you think of as above so below as taking disparate things and finding the similarities in them in order to advance both of those things, the the doppelganger is the opposite of that. It's the thing that seems exactly like you, but is different in a in a in a key way, in a in a creepy way, in a way that perhaps doesn't suggest development. Perhaps it, as a matter of fact, it is often thought of as an omen in many cultures for for death. So perhaps in a way. And feel free to bounce this idea back to me if it's not landing for you. But there might be there might those ideas might be um, similar, but but opposed in a very key way. Well, that's certainly an interesting idea. Uh, well, just to uh, on to go back to our idea of synchronicities. Yes. Um, I don't think the idea, I mean, maybe it's becoming a little bit more common generally now, but to have an idea land Mm -hmm. uh, is not something that you you hear that much. But I I was just going through um, for this, you know, this textbook I'm writing for for Rutledge Press, going through interesting um, phrases and terminology specific to, to various professions and trades. And to what extent we're losing some of that now because everything is just being, you know, technology is kind of overwhelming everything. But I just, you know, only a couple of hours ago hit on um, some salesman lingo, um, you know, which would apply to car salesmen and, you know, retail sales, you know, basic sales stuff, you know, not high end stuff necessarily. Mm-hmm. But the idea is land and expand. Okay, so you've got to okay. have a, a okay. degree of your pitch land, but mm-hmm. also have the potential for it to expand, um, mm-hmm. and and hopefully not expand like a bullet. You know, um, right? <laughs> uh, look, I, I think there's there's some really um, important uh, ideas there. I, I think that for me, what what is connecting across this entire subject field is a notion of a complementary, unified seeking of wholeness worldview that has appeared in different cultures at different times. And it seems to be, I think, more than at war with, I think 
to me, the model is is degradation or dilution mm. that it is somehow lost its its magical strength and has actually become kind of perverted. Um, there's another you know Jungian concept which is again hard to pronounce, um, but it's you know where where something becomes its opposite. Um, mm-hmm. An antiodromia or something, you know, I think that's the pronunciation of it. Uh, it's actually not a word you say very aloud very often, but it's a really important word. Um, and people like Lewis Carroll were very interested in that in terms of mathematics and logic. And M.C. Escher's drawings reflect that. The Mobius strip is a good visual example mm-hmm. of that. So there are ways that things that can be kind of transform themselves that seems sort of positive. And then as we know that there, there are ways that things can become degraded. Mm-hmm. And uh, to think of another one of our, our, our heroes, Terence McKenna, you know, he talks about the difference between sort of sacred hallucinogenic drugs and then just recreational party use drugs, you know, ecstasy, right. alcohol, uh, you know, the idea of, of tobacco smoking has, you know, used to be, and, and still can be in certain contexts, I suppose, a very important social, meditative, sharing uh, practice. And then it can be just come, you know, a, a stupid commercial and, and, you know, unhealthy habit, you mm-hmm. know, that you just mm-hmm. do all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think some of that is going on here that we, we've seen some sort of strange, uh, and I think somewhat, well, I think very sad progression of a unify or a belief in unity. Um, I mean, another idea of, of the complementary thing is, and it's not just men and women, uh, but it's the idea of love, you know, the two parts of the apple, Plato's idea of, of you know, the two becoming one or becoming three. I mean, I think that's a beautiful idea. Um, and everyone knows how powerful, you know, a friendship can be or a marriage. When a marriage is really firing, you know, it's like it. two people really are an army, you know, yep, yep. or they can be at war, you know. Yep, it, it, yep. it sort of goes one way or another. But somehow underlying this uh, is a philosophical uh, position where... I mean, I think you and I seek for unity between, you know, we would say Correct. that DNA across all the living, you know, is very common. There, there isn't that much difference between human DNA and, say, a banana or a porcupine, you know. Right. And other people, you know, see it just the opposite way. Uh, they, they don't see a connection between, say, astronomy and psychology or mythology, as say, you know, Bergson and, and all of the ancient traditions that we've been talking about. That's exactly what they saw. You know, mm-hmm. they see the, the, the mystical double, the mysterious twins. They see that inside ourselves, inside our minds, yes. inside our relationships and our cultures, but they see it up in the sky, you mm-hmm. know? Right, right. And that, I think, is something that is so difficult to understand today because we're all so atomized and we've all been taught right to look word. at things so literally we've been taught to to take things um in a way that doesn't open you up to these kind of connections by the way i will throw out there uh, as you said as a marriage could work today is uh rios and i's uh, 14th anniversary 
Wow, so. cool. Well, that's a good, that's, that's, uh, that's a good omen and uh, a nice synchronicity. And oh, yeah. well, congratulations. That's Thanks, a great man. effort. Um, and I think that's, an, I mean, it's a great effort for anybody. Um, I made 12 years at one point. Uh, that's one of good. Them. <laughs> yeah, good. yeah. But 14 years at your age is a real, real achievement. I mean, that, that's just, that, that's a wonderful demonstration in the world. Um, uh, well, a performance of, of magic, you know, not just an, an example. It's a performance of it. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I, that's just, and it ties into another, um, it, to take listeners back to um, an author that we mentioned earlier in the piece, George Lakoff. He and Mark Johnson wrote a very well-known book called The Metaphors We Live By. Uh, and David and I recommended then, and I want to sort of uh, recommend it again, because it, it looks at the idea of metaphor really as not just a linguistic device, a poetic device or a rhetorical device. It is a recognition of fundamental reality, of fundamental yes. connections. Yes, 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 yes. You know, and I think that, that what we're talking about here is a, an early tradition of seeing doubleness in terms of literal truth, a literal perception, almost in a scientific sense, but with this magical folkloric religious uh, sacredness behind that, that mm-hmm. tone. Mm-hmm. And something happened to, to fragment that yeah. um, over time. And, and in a way, human history the movement, and this is not just European history. I think this is true worldwide because we start with worldwide motifs. Um, There are many examples of this within uh, the Chinese and Indian traditions, both in terms of of religion and and literature. Um, But we don't have time to sort of cover everything. Sure. But um, maybe we could go back even further in time before the Greeks to the home in a sense of world magic and look at another mythological example. I'm thinking of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, Egypt is almost too cool, too mysterious, too important for me yeah. to even think about, you know, I mentioned just the idea of being of seeing the Nile river, which is of course it's going to be a disappointment. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it mm-hmm. can't, it's not going to look like those beautiful sepia old postcards from, you know, a, you know, a, a sort of near colonial time. It's not going to look like the the dreams that you have exactly, but it's still Egypt. Right, and right. One of the, you know, the, the core sort of uh, metaphysical religious ideas is, is the ka, mm. the, the double that lingers in the tomb and inhabited the body but yet is capable of transcendence, which is directly related to, and I'm, again, pardon my pronunciation, but the, the kabit, the shadow of, of people, and that is directly attached. There's, there's no, you know, in a George Lakoff sense, there's no uh, distance here. This is a physical example of metaphor, physical performance as, you know, going back to, you know, your, your marriage is a performance in the world. It's not an example of something mm-hmm. it, it is something right. um the kabit as shadow equals memory it's a direct one-to-one thing 
-hmm. So here we have, I mean, what could be more fundamental? This is what I mean by the heart of the human mystery. There is no distinction that really can be meaningfully made, in my view, between perception and memory. I just don't mm -hmm. see how that works. Yeah, I, I see that, that we, we divide these, we divide cognition into these artificial categories and we think we can align them then with locations in the brain, like craters on the moon, you know, and we can label them, you know, this is the sea of tranquility, this is the seat of language, or we've tried to look for memory in the human brain. And for people who missed our discussions about Rupert Sheldrake and his idea of formative causation, um, or morphogenetic fields, that's one of the things that we were talking about, of, of a non-physically, as in brain-located uh, center for mm -hmm. memory. Mm -hmm. At minimum, at minimum, our today's science, the best cognitive science people in the Harvard, Cambridge, Boston area, in Palo Alto, etc., London, you know, the best of them say memory is somehow distributed throughout the brain in ways that we, we don't really understand physically mm -hmm. or physiologically. Mm -hmm. And we'll get this to this when we talk, you know, later uh, in, in another episode about uh, psychology and, and the science aspects mm -hmm. of the double. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we, we just don't understand the mystery of memory at all. Right. And we, there is the Sheldrakean argument is that somehow the brain acts not as a reservoir, a container, a safe, a safe, uh, which, and just as a side note, I, whenever I think of a, of a large safe as in a bank vault, mm -hmm. I feel the need to remind people about the stunt that broke Houdini mm -hmm. and made him famous when he got himself locked into the main bank vault in London. And he simply sat down and waited a few minutes, you know, to give it a little bit of theatrical effect and then walked out mm. and people went, wow, how did you do that? And um, he said, and some great minds have since repeated this in various forms. Bank vaults were meant to be difficult to get into, not to get out of. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about the human brain. Here it is trapped in our, you know, it's protected, but it's also confined it's in I, my view is it's kind of in a witness protection program in our skull. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's a good you know? metaphor, right? And uh, I just saw some MRI pictures of my brain, which is really fantastic. I mean, I've got three or four hundred of them. I want to make art out of them. Uh, in one, my brain looks like uh, a sort of maritime pattern you might find on like a, a, a vase from Crete. Mm. And then, then it looks like a walnut. And then in another sense, it looks like a terminator. You know, like this evil sort of belief. Yeah, and right. I think, well, it's all there, isn't it? Yeah, it but, is. I mean, if you were confined in a room, wouldn't one of your thoughts be trying to get out? I That would be my first thought, you right. know? Yeah, yeah. So I think the brain is doing that. So when we talk about memory, David and I are exploring the idea that somehow memories and and we're relating them to dreams and to perhaps even perception of various kinds that we don't know how to process, waking life perceptions that are not coming to us through our physical embodied senses, but are somehow being tuned in. And, and we're not taking any sort of side on this, but we're just 
exploring that in a hermetic sense of what if, you know, yeah, yeah. how would that work? Um, well, your, um, your description of the Ka got me thinking, well, first of all, when I was a kid, I was really into dinosaurs. And then once I got tired of dinosaurs, I moved straight into ancient Egypt because there's just something so aesthetically cool about it. But I also think that we're drawn to things that do have a sort of power. Um, I think there's something about what the Egyptians were onto uh, that resonates through to today, especially when you think of things like the the Greek magical papyri, right? Which was it's you know it's the it's the spells used by an unnamed you know Egyptian shaman uh, for all manner of things, really. But um, thinking about the Ka and it being this sort of shadow devil, it made me think of the anthroposophic, which is, uh, to, just to be clear, that I'm talking about anthroposophy, the, uh, the philosophy mostly headed by Rudolf Steiner in the early 20th century, the right. anthroposophic idea of the double. And the way that Steiner puts it, when you're born, you have what's called a luciferic double. Now there's a there's a difference between Lucifer and Araman, which are these these two big figures in anthroposophy that we probably don't have have time to to get into, but if you think of uh Lucifer not as being the 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 devil here but also not necessarily a, a figure for for perfect good and uh but Araman is being sort of like the bad guy, right? We'll just overly simplify it in that way. So you have a luciferic double when you're born, but then right after you're born you are visited and there was a rumble of thunder in the distance right when i said that Ooh, Ooh. <laughs> um uh you are you are inhabited by an aramonic double right and the aramonic double or shadow is a is a being or a creature that is outside of yourself and when you think about the ka as, as being um this sort of after death it's the shadow that gets up and, and walks away that's what the Aramonic double is as well, because if there's one thing, according to Steiner, that the Aramonic double fears, it's it's death. So it will exit the body once it feels like the body is not going to be living much longer, because that's the one thing that it can't it can't go through. So, you know, Steiner had to have been cognizant of wh where he was sort of coming from with that, right? So I'm not attempting to indicate that there's some sort of coincidence or synchronicity between these two ideas, but the idea of the Aramonic double as a thing that is outside of yourself, that isn't necessarily uh, a, a part of you, but that kind of latches on. And that also, by the way, that you can't get rid of, that there's nothing that you can do about it. So you're right. sort of always having these thoughts uh, that are the thoughts of your double, but in your own mind, they're indistinguishable from your own thoughts. I think that's 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 it. That's a key right there. Well, it is a key, it, and this is what I, why I, you know I, I said at the start. I think that this I this this subject field is this motif is is near the heart of the whole human mystery because it is so near this idea of the hidden observer, mm -hmm. the idea that we somehow have a part of ourselves that remembers and sees everything. I mean, how can you have self deception as an idea? without doubleness. I mean, that is essentially an expression of doubleness, isn't right. it? I mean, yeah. 
and and you look deeper and deeper at language and you see this constantly of i mean take a simple expression like oh i changed my mind well mm -hmm. for starters that sounds like a really difficult thing to do mm -hmm. um but also it seems weird of like why would you have to change your whole mind if you're really talking about going out for italian food as opposed to mexican you know yeah. um right. but who's changing the mind i mean if that imply we have this doubleness this mysterious stranger twin stowaway, stowaway. And one of the um, the uh, works of literature that I, I, I hope we'll get around to talking about sort of in the next episode is one of my favorite uh, longer short stories, The Secret Sharer by Conrad. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful. Uh, it picks up on our sea story idea of we were, when we were talking about Moby Dick, but it's very much this mysterious uh, double um shadow twin doppelganger sort of figure mm -hmm. um you know when you were speaking before i i thought of you know we talk about how this is a motif that repeats around the world and we think about that in big historical terms um and on that note i just might mention a beautiful book that i've just gotten called the book of symbols which is a tashin book um, they're, they're having their 40th anniversary, and it is just a beautiful, hardbound uh, book with great illustrations and tremendously insightful uh, text, um, which is a great resource for, for writers, thinking people, you know, anyone who's interested in world mythology, um, and certainly anybody just interested in, in visual uh, symbols. Uh, it's just a, a, another wonderful achievement by Tash and Books. Um, but these things are living traditions as well. And I've been, been corresponding with a group who um, shares some dream research uh, well, between us. They don't just share with me, I share with them as well. Mm -hmm. um, and one very common dream that has come up, and most people you know, walk away from it, they just think it's, it's just there as a dream idea, is that they had a twin at birth and for some reason, the twin either died or was adopted out, hmm. and they never found out what happens. And in many cases, the, the dream revelation is, is digging through a garage or moving boxes and finding some photographs mm -hmm. that uh, from a very, very early infant stage. But it's quite clear, you know, that there's this doubling of of, of, of you know, and no one said anything. And apparently, you know, the, the, the psychological view of this is that this is an expression of uh, a deep suspicion about the nature of the family. Mm. And, you know, are we really related to these people or is it more the Buddhist idea that we're just birds who have, you know, found each other on the same branch at some mm -hmm. point? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that's a very interesting idea of, of the sense of, of this doubleness being kind of haunting us, you know, from, from the very early stage. Um, and then I, I thought a, a, one of the, a crucial moment um, in my life, which um, I've written about in, in, in one of the, the memoir pieces about, uh, I happened, it was an early, early reading experience where I started to read aloud myself. And my grand, I was reading, to my grandmother, she basically, 
she and my sister really taught me how to read. And I happened to be reading the Winnie the Pooh story about where the woozle wasn't, mm -hmm. which for people who are fans of, of Winnie the Pooh, which is, of course, an allegory about the mind where each of the characters supposedly represents some kind of, of psychological problem. You know, Eeyore's the manic depressive, you know, <laughs> yeah. Al, Piglet's some sort of hysteric, or, you know, I don't know about that, but it's funny. But anyway, people who know the story know that, that Pooh and Piglet believe they're tracking this mythic creature called the Woozle, and really what they're following, uh, they're, they're walking around a thicket of trees, and really they're just following their own footsteps. And of course, there is no woozle, but the woozle becomes more and more real to them, which I think is a fabulous uh, idea embedded in this strange story. Mm -hmm. But as I was reading this story to my grandmother, I remember this distinctly. I asked her if I should read it in my Ed or Bobby voice. Hmm. And that so stunned me that I remember just bolt standing up from her couch in her room. She lived with us. She had a small room. And uh, I, rem I had never articulated that idea, that capability, that, that division within myself before. And I, for a moment, didn't have any idea what I meant. But what I did mean was that Bobby had a kind of softer, more sort of cuddly, uh, you know, he was still wearing pajamas, you know, kind mm -hmm. of voice. And Ed was the tougher kid, you know, the hooligan, the wannabe. Uh, it, it's the Tom Sawyer versus Huck Finn, you know, distinction mm -hmm. to some extent. A little bit young, you know, younger than that, of course, but building towards that. And, you know, that that sense of... of, of that schismatic relationship there is somehow connected with all of this. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. somehow I think the doppelganger moment, this sort of uncanny ghost story-ish thing, and we're going to get to that with the literary traditions of this, which go down more the ghost story path, I believe. I think that comes from the shock of awareness of this twin double sense within ourselves and an intuitive childlike perception of how the complementary binary idea has collapsed culturally over time and has mm. become more of a war rather than a partnership and a project together. How does that sound to you as an idea? I love it because what it suggests to me is that there's a corruption of the double when it's not properly fed. So the idea being that there is a sort of um, a schism within your own self and what the doppelganger the, is, is perhaps a, um, you know, you mentioned the film Us, we don't have to get too deep into it, but in the film, the doppelgangers of people are in this abandoned underground um series of hallways it's a very kind of lynchian looking place and <laughs> and and they're they're sort of left there to to mimic the movements of of their doubles up on the surface of of the earth right so you'll see people pretending to cook and and things like that but the key there is that they're locked away 
And as they're locked away, they begin to degrade. There's nothing for them to look at. There's nothing for them to do. And I'm compelled now by this idea of uh, two ideas. The first idea being the concept of the tulpa. Are you familiar with this idea? Yes. Uh huh. So the concept of the tulpa was, um, it comes from, I believe, uh, Tibetan Buddhist folklore, but it was really reintroduced by the theosophists um, as an idea of a thought form that is made manifest in, in our world through magical means or, you know, sometimes just by really concentrating on it hard enough. So the, the doppelganger has the feel of a tulpa to me, but a tulpa that's made inversely to how your typical tulpa would be made. So a tulpa is made by concentration and intention, and it seems like the doppelganger could be made through neglect, right? Through leaving that part of you in this underground series of tunnels to 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 rot and never sort of trotting it out and and doing something about it. It makes me think of the twin in the dream of this idea that there, that you've had this twin all along that either died uh, before childbirth or or was adopted and and you weren't told about it. Um, the fact that you're not told about it seems to me to be dream speak for for you've been ignoring it right right and, okay and it kind of and it feels to me that what that what that dream would be coming at it from my sort of animist cosmology is that that is a that's a missive from the underground tunnels right it's trying to get I you like to that. realize that that hey we're we're down here and you haven't paid attention to us in forever. You haven't listened to us. You haven't, you haven't given us any, any sort of free reign of, of your life. And you need to start paying attention to, to, to what's going on down here. I like that very much. And I think that has a very strong linkage to the literary examples uh, and larger artistic examples, which we'll explore next episode, and certainly uh, any any psychological in, in interpretations of what's going on of this of ignoring these voices from from the tunnels. But I I liked another. Th there was another key word again. I, I love how you use very simple words, but use them in an interesting sort of way because it triggers new relationships of thought. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, you know, you've talked about sort of a profit and loss sort of approach to belief and, and why we would suspend, you know, uh, belief in certain things just categorically. What do we gain by that? I've, I've liked how you've done that. But just in the last couple of minutes, you used the, the term inverse, mm -hmm. you know, an inversion. And I think that's a beautiful way of looking at this because inverse is related to perverse, you know, we talk about mm -hmm. perversion, perversity, and we think about that oftentimes as being in a kind of category in all its own. I mean, a pervert is a terrible thing. We, you know, we, we go to a very, very stupid and mundane place with that very quickly, kind of like where, where we started the episode. You're talking about the idea of, a, of doppelgangers in a, in a social media sense is, mm -hmm. has a tragically pedestrian definition. Um, Pervert could be rethought, I think, and perversion and perversity could be rethought, not as some sort of schismatic, uh, absolute departure and, and difference. It could be thought of more as an inverted presence, mm -hmm. 
that, that a ratio has changed. And maybe that is a way, you know, in a unifying sort of sense of a way of, of seeing this, this, this arc of corruption that we've been talking about, the idea of a sense of, of doubleness being a very positive, strength-imbuing thing to being a divided mind, divided soul, uh, war, antagonism, endless conflict, all those sorts of, of negative or dark and, and certainly um, problematic expressions, which seems to have historically where, where this is, is gone. I mean, in the past, there was this tradition of, of seeing things more in balance, you know, this possibility of complementary relationships existing with opposition, you know, that, that, that even opposition uh, as in enemies or the nemesis idea, even that could be incorporated within a larger pleroma mm -hmm. uh, or, or you know, unifying field of, of, of life and, and magic. That even the idea of opposition and, and its worst form of, of war um, could be subsumed and, and, man, you know, and managed. Um, right. right. And, and there's a great, uh, I mean, there's a great literary example which plays on, on mythology, which might be kind of a nice roundup to this episode, but a link to talking about uh, literary uh, examples and artistic examples of this in a very formal sense next time. Um, I'm thinking of, of Euripides' play, uh, The Baki, um, which was, I think that was written, you know, I don't know, about 400 you know, BC. Uh, it's a late work for him it's a it's considered one of the most interesting of the dramas um but we have you know bacchanalia we have some really crazy chaotic forces released but the entire work is about the double idea it's about these complementary relationships these strange pairings um you know, from male and female in fairly literal biological terms to all of the spiritual and psychological significances we bring to that of, of the magical and the sacred versus the, the secular, you know, the, 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 the drinking of, of wine in a hypnotic trance sort of sense down to the drunkenness, you know, yeah, yeah. sense. All of the, all of the, the, the major uh, categories of human activity that, are, that can be in any way framed in binary terms. That's what that work is about. It's a tremendous thing to reread today because we certainly need that kind of thinking of, of breaking down the political and ideological uh, and religious and economic right. and all the divisions that are fostered upon us, uh, you know, by the media, social media, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a really good example of where that holistic uh, well, a magical sort of point of view, hermetic point of view, a Gnostic, a deep point of view, even though it was mm -hmm. not definitely connected, that was all part of, of, of people's thinking. And, um, yeah. yeah. And, and I, th I think that just what you're saying is also good. Um, but I, I have, I have this quick thought and it's not, it's not exactly what you're saying, but I think, well, actually I think I think you are kind of saying it, but, and I agree with it. So basically when we're talking about this double, right, to go back to the metaphor of the movie Us, if for people who've seen it, eventually the doubles sort of break free and they stage their own revolution 
and uh, move up to the surface and and want to send you know the people who are on the surface back down to where they've been right so there's a lot of interesting political implications of that but from a psychological point of view what it's what the movie seems to be saying is that if you don't handle your your baggage right if you don't uh, uh, do something about it, it'll it'll rise up and take you over. And that's true. But it's also, like you said, it's a little pedestrian, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the key thing with with the doppelganger, and I think that this, this is what you're getting at, and I think that this is what we want people to take away from this, is that a doppelganger doesn't need to take over. A doppelganger doesn't want control. It just wants relationality between between you and it, right? Um, it, it wants to, to be, it wants to have a kind of seat at the table and this degradation that happens is when you either, uh, sort of push it down too far or let it have run of, of your mind. Right. But there's a sweet spot there, um, that we've been talking about where these seeming opposites, you and your double sort of do this dance and you interact with each other. And you you sort of you you cultivate a relationship with it, right? And that's where the magic happens, maybe. Well, I think that's exactly right. And I, I you know one way to think about this in very very practical terms, uh, because you know we're we're all about sort of making magical you know magic as an idea something that's accessible mm-hmm. and and part of people's working toolkit. I mean, this is an experience that can happen to us and does happen to us all the time. We can be alone, you know. Um, I, I've been alone today. And uh, sometimes th- that experience of being alone is enormously powerful and, and you can get your concentration is sharp, you're getting work done. You, you have a kind of delight in being. And there are other times, as we all know, where we start to feel really, you know, either lonely and sad perhaps or, you know, for some of us, we can actively feel a little bit anxious, paranoid, you know, mm-hmm. and and then we want to talk to someone. We want sort of we, we reach out. You know, it's that it's that mind, that creature in, in the room trying to get out of the room somehow and connect with other people, which is a kind of a magic act. I mean, I think that the communication we're having now is is meets my uh, all my criteria for magic. Yes. Yeah, um so it's that that strange sense of of how and and really isn't this the great challenge um for all of life in very practical terms i mean socrates said know thyself which is a strange concept if you don't know we don't know ourselves who does um but there's obviously a problem there there's a doubleness implicit in that how do we make peace with ourselves that mysterious double twin within our own minds and hearts, perhaps, um, how do we make peace with that and, and make ourselves an army as opposed to a war within? Ooh, ooh you know? that's a great I, move I, you did there. That's great. I love that. I, I think that's one of, one of our great challenges. Um, but one other sort of way of seeing this, and I love your idea of corruption. I'd use the term... Uh, degradation or, or dilution. Uh, and I think both of those are, maybe degradation is okay, because I like how images can degrade, but I think dilution is too soft. And I like your term of corruption. Um, one way to sort of look at this, and again, a reminder of how this motif repeats around the world, 
The Yoruba people are, are really one of the two principal tribes in Nigeria and have an enormous influence across Western Africa as a result. And they are really the source, the origin point of an enormous amount of West African culture, uh, linguistically, musically, uh, mythologically. And a lot of their uh, ideas through the uh, transatlantic slave trade move into the new world of North America, the Caribbean, and the northern parts of, of uh, South America. And their religious ideas, we, we see it in Vudan, which uh, gets corrupted into voodoo in Haiti. We see it in Candomblé and uh, Santeria. You know, it's um, these African ideas that uh, attach themselves and reinvent themselves through syncretic means. I think, David, you earlier used the term syncretic in an earlier episode. Some people would be very familiar with that idea and some people would not. It has to do, syncretic is uh, a synthesis of, of different points of view, different ideas. And in, in the, the context that we're talking about now, it would refer to West African mythologies and religious pantheons and belief systems aligning themselves and reinventing themselves through a Catholic framework. So that Catholic saints in the New World for, in, in, for the people who went through the African diaspora become linked with West African deities, West African spiritual sort of beliefs. And one of the key ones was that there is a tradition of, of twins being mystical and having religious significance. And there are some interesting reasons of why twins are very common, actually, in, in Nigeria. Uh, it's believed it's related to um, a yam uh, product that, that is consumed in abundance. It's a staple. Um, I'm not sure if that's uh, actually right or not, and I wouldn't <laughs> be qualified to say that's the the reason for it. But what's interesting is that the tradition of magic and the good omen, the prosperity, the power, the beneficent aspect of twins changed over time and it became a sign of evil. It became a bad omen. It, and it led to examples of, of twins being murdered. So a, a twin literally would go missing. You know, it wasn't a dream thing. Right. It was actually. But the reason this happened had everything to do with economics hmm. of, of supporting this other. It had to do with with economic, social food chain changes um, and colonialism. So it had to do with very, very secular uh, world and ugly world reasons. Mm -hmm. And that was how this magical tradition got corrupted. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that isn't a way to lead into uh, an attempt um, by the literary and artistic people to kind of salvage some sense of the magic and therefore the uncanny aspect of doubleness um, for our next episode. What, what do you think of that? I think that's great. I think that's a perfect place to leave off this particular episode. I, I love that we're doing these multi-parters, by the way, because it Me gives too. us enough space to kind of 
you know, I think you've laid it out in a very lovely way. And I think that it gives us enough space to sort of, you know, think out loud and get to the sort of points that we're trying to make that I don't, I just, I don't think we'd be able to to do it no matter how hard we focused in, in one particular episode. So I'm looking forward to part two. Me too. Me too. It's a stumbling, fumbling, hermetic journey, you know, and I think There's that's... No other uh, kind. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We hope that other people enjoy uh, enjoy the trip. <laughs>